Okay, thank you so much, guys. If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 this morning. As you're turning there, you'll remember that the book of Philippians is a thank you letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in modern-day Greece, thanking them for the financial gift that they had entrusted to him. As Paul thanks them for this gift, he uses that as an opportunity to encourage the Philippian church to unity, and specifically to a unity that's accomplished through humbly serving one another. And Paul lifts up Jesus and says, Jesus is this preeminent example we need to look at if we want to know what humble service of one another really entails. But in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul's going to turn his attention to a different topic. Paul is going to begin to warn the Philippians of some of the dangers that they're facing. Now, to be sure, the danger that Paul's going to identify today in the book of Philippians as he's writing this letter to them is in some ways unique to the culture and time in which this letter is situated. But I would submit to you that the root issue that Paul addresses as a danger is still a danger for you and me today. In fact, I would submit to you the danger Paul addresses this morning is the most dangerous thing we will ever face in this life. It's easy to let geopolitical realities like North Korea or just traveling the streets and some of the challenges we face to blind us to the true danger we face in this life, which is not physical, but spiritual in nature. And it's a danger that's connected to the brokenness that every one of us find in the human heart. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what that danger is in this passage of Scripture. And we're going to look at, by God's grace, what we need to do to overcome that danger. Would you please stand with me? As we look at this danger from the Word of God in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. We read these words. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible... I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, this is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in these moments, we're asking for you to speak to us by your spirit and through your word. God, would you just right now remove any distraction And would you help us fix our minds and our hearts on what you're saying to us? God, as we hear from you today, would you help us not only be hearers of your word, but doers as well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage starts with a warning that Paul gives to the Philippians. Once he encourages them to rejoice again, a repetition of theme there. He tells them he wants to encourage them to be safe, to be protected, and then he immediately follows this encouragement about protection with a threefold warning in verse 2. I want you to notice it with me. He says, number one, look out for the dogs. Number two, look out for the evildoers. And number three, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now that phrase, look out, could be translated, watch out, in case you were asleep, okay? Watch out. Don't know if you've ever been driving with someone in the car, right? Someone else is driving, and you're in the passenger seat, and you see them doing something reckless or unsafe. What do you say? Watch out, right? Some of you may have done that on the way to church this morning, right? Something you see that the other person's not aware of, and if they don't pay heed to your warning, you could all be hurt. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's from the back seat, from the passenger side of the car, looking at the Philippians and where they're going, and he's saying, look guys, you've got to watch out because you're headed for trouble. And the trouble that Paul warns them about revolve around a group of people that have begun to infiltrate the church. And apparently these groups of people, these teachers that were coming into the church, were teaching that the way you received the grace and mercy of Jesus was by keeping the law of the Old Testament. This is why Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about the fact that they emphasized certain rituals like circumcision as a way you would receive the grace and mercy of Jesus in your life. Paul calls this evil. He calls these people dogs, the lowest of low animals in Roman culture, because the result of trusting the law is a distraction to the real trust we're to have in Jesus. You see, what Paul is saying is that these 
false teachers have misunderstood what the law is there to do. The law does point to what we must do in our own strength to earn God's favor. That's true. The Ten Commandments reveal what we must do if God is going to find us acceptable in our own strength. The problem was these false teachers were encouraging people to try to meet God's standard in their own strength. When the reality of what the law is pointing us to is not to try harder, but the law is meant to point us to our inability to meet God's commandments and his standard in our strength. So think of it this way. When you go to Six Flags or you go to a theme park, right, and you're getting ready to go on a really fast roller coaster, if you've got kids One of the things you have to do before you get on that roller coaster is see if your kids are tall enough. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's a a really pivotal moment for parents when there's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth with children if they don't get to go on the ride. And there's a real simple way you can tell if your child is going to be able to go on this ride, right? There's a ruler that stands in front of that ride that kids have to stand under to see if they're tall enough. If their head can meet the, the, the height requirement, they can get on the ride. If it doesn't, they have to sit with mom or dad while older brothers and sisters ride the ride, right? Well, when it comes to grace and it comes to the law, think of it like that ruler. The law is like that ruler that stands in front of that ride. Every human being stands under it and all of us fall short. There's not a one of us left to our strength and our ability that meets the height requirement to be worthy of God's grace and mercy. In fact, when we stand under that ruler, the top of it so high, we cannot see it. And what Paul is saying is these false teachers have misunderstood what the law is there to do. It's not there to point you to self-sufficiency. And your effort, it's there to point you to your need for Jesus. This is why he goes on to call you and I. Look at verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision. You could say the true circumcision. Let me just give you an explanation of that phrase. What that means is that circumcision wasn't pointing to more rituals as the way to keep you right with God circumcision was pointing to a circumcision of the heart that all of us need. Just as circumcision was a medical procedure that was performed and it was viewed as a way of removing the effects of sin as it was passed genetically from father to son, we need a circumcision of the heart in which God removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Look at the, in fact, look at how he describes this true circumcision. He gives three descriptions. He talks about those who worship by the Spirit of God. That is, the Spirit's the one who performs the surgery. He talks about people that glory in Christ Jesus. The Spirit's applying the finished work of Christ, so we don't glory in ourselves, we glory in Christ. And thirdly, look at the result. They put no confidence in the flesh. A follower of Jesus 
is someone who understands that their standing as forgiven, as righteous, doesn't come from anything they do. It comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point that I want you to see in this first section here. What Paul is saying is that you and I have to reject, oppose any kind of teaching that distracts us from the sufficient and final work of Jesus. This is what Paul is saying. We're to oppose, we're to reject any kind of teaching that would ever lead us to place a sufficient hope in ourselves rather than Christ. Now, let me contextualize this a little bit for 2017, because I understand some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not looking to the law to save me. I don't look to the Ten Commandments or circumcision or other rituals that were prevalent in that time. How does this apply to us? Well, I believe this confidence in the flesh Paul talks about is alive and well today in just about every direction you look in our culture. The predominant movement in which we see this kind of false teaching showing up is in a movement called secular humanism. And what secular humanism teaches is that you, each of you, have the answer inside you. The the key to happiness, to your dreams coming true, this is a popularized version of this, is if you follow your heart. The kind of uh, religious expression of this secular humanism is kind of a, a New Age spirituality represented in people like Eckhart Tolle. Listen to a quote from this guy about this kind of confidence in self. He says, The power is in you. The answer is in you. And you are the answer to all your searches. You are the goal. You are the answer. It's never outside. And that's a modern-day view of confidence in the flesh. Because where we locate the answer to life's biggest problems shows us what we're really trusting in. So one of the results of secular humanism kind of making inroads into every part of our culture is in one of the organizations we see called Freedom From Religion. I don't know if you guys have seen this organization. It's called the Freedom From Religion organization, and they are based out of Wisconsin, and they sue everybody. They have teams of lawyers that are constantly suing anybody that expresses their faith in a kind of public sector. Somebody prays at a school or has some kind of religious expression in some government forum, they're quick to bring suit. And I want to just sit down and ask these people, how are you defining religion? How are you defining religion? Because I think if we define religion as a set of beliefs that leads to worship, please understand that what we're seeing in our culture today is not the end of religious expression. It's merely the replacement and a new form of religious expression. Because what we're seeing today is it's fine for you to worship as long as you worship yourself. It's fine for you to worship as long as you exalt and lift up humanity as the end-all be-all to life. 
it's easy to see this in our culture sometimes. Sometimes it's a little bit harder to see this in ourselves. One of the ways this kind of self-reliance shows up in my life is when I can go periods of time throughout my day, long periods, without praying. It's easy for some of us maybe to think that we're acceptable to God because of our parents' faith. Or maybe because we attend church or or give money to this and that. And what Paul says is none of those things, none of those things make you right before God. All of those things that I just listed are different expressions of this confidence in the flesh. And Paul says you're to reject this. You're to oppose it at every level. So if this is indeed a danger and we're to oppose it, The next question we've got to deal with is, how do we do that? How do we oppose a self-sufficient confidence in ourselves? What I'll show you next is I want to show you the example of the Apostle Paul. Notice how Paul responds to this confidence in the flesh through his example. Let me set this up just for a few minutes, okay? When you read these verses 4 through 8, I want you to notice how Paul puts forward his resume. Okay, watch how Paul puts forward his accomplishments. But what you really need to pay attention to is watch how Paul levels a verdict about his accomplishments, okay? So watch verse 4, and as he goes into this, watch the verdict. Verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here it is, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now listen, church, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Paul makes his position pretty clear, doesn't he? He says, these false teachers, you think they have confidence in their ability, in their resume? Let me give you mine. Paul lists his pedigree. His family origin is of pristine respect. He talks about his devotion to Judaism as a Pharisee, as he memorized large portions of the Old Testament, especially the law. He talked about how his religious expression was not just one of lip service. He was passionate about his faith because he persecuted the church. He even goes so far as to say that from a human perspective, he was blameless as it relates to human standards. But what was his verdict? Did you see it, church? He says, all of these things I count, I consider as loss. For Christ. Paul is saying that the things that he once thought were profitable to him, advantageous to him, actually turned out to be detrimental to him. Paul's not renouncing his heritage. He's still a Jew. He still understands that. Paul's not even saying that we shouldn't work and we shouldn't try to advance and Do those things for the glory of God. What he is saying is that we've got to shift 
in our perspective about what our greatest need really is and how our efforts apply or better don't apply to that. Paul is saying that if we don't view these accomplishments rightly, they can be incredibly dangerous because these kinds of accomplishments in our lives can lead us to trust ourselves rather than Jesus. Paul says these things he once thought were the world to him actually turned out to be losses to him. In World War II, Nazi Germany accomplished incredible feats through a military strategy they termed Blitzkrieg. Some of you may be familiar with that from history, where they would rapidly and with very little notice mobilize their forces and advance rapidly into a new area, catching the enemy off guard. And if you study how kind of Europe laid out during World War II, you see them doing this in the West in areas like France very successfully. They just roll right over the defenses that are there and conquer large swaths of territory very quickly. Well, you also may be aware that during World War II, at first, there was kind of this political friendly agreement between Germany and Russia. They kind of had this agreement going on where they wouldn't attack them and they wouldn't attack them. But, but over time, that deteriorated. Political maneuverings kind of broke down and the Germans decide, well, if it's going to be us or them, we're going to go ahead and attack them. And they begin to deploy the same strategy in the east that had been so successful in the west. And so the German forces begin to conquer large swaths of territory in places like Poland. And as they go into Russia, they just seem to be unstoppable, conquering acre and mile after mile after mile. But something begins to happen as they take more ground. The weather begins to change in Russia. Anybody know how cold it gets in Russia? David Livingston does. He goes on mission trips there. It gets pretty cold there. And as they begin to take more and more territory, and as the Russians mount counter-offensives and begin to push them back, the Germans begin to realize the very territory they had gained that they thought was an advantage to them when the Russian winter set in actually became their undoing. Because now they had to go all the way back to Germany in this weather they were unprepared for, in which their supply lines were stretched thin. The very territory they thought was an advantage and a gain ended up being a loss. Now, church, listen to me. This is what we do in our lives. We accumulate accomplishments. We accumulate resumes and and things that make us look good in public in front of other people. But what we fail to recognize is the very territory we gain through our lives, without Jesus, these things actually end up destroying us. Paul is saying the things that he once thought were a gain to him actually turned out to be lost. In fact, he even takes it a step further. Look at verse 8, how he ups his game here a little bit as he intensifies his verdict. He says, indeed, I count everything, every single thing in his life as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Paul says, put all my accomplishments, put my resume, put all my stuff here. And do you know what that looks like? It looks like a vile pile of odor, odor, just foul-smelling garbage and trash compared to Jesus. The very things that I thought were valuable to me, the very things that I thought were the greatest thing in the world that were going to make me somebody, actually have turned out to be vile garbage because they've distracted me from knowing Jesus. Here's the point I want you to take home today, okay? The way we kill pride in our lives is by believing that Jesus is better. The way you and I put no confidence in the flesh is by believing that what I have in Christ is better and greater than anything I'll ever accumulate in this world. So think about your accomplishments for a minute. Do, take the exercise and the example of Paul into your life. Think about your resume, your career. Jesus is better than those things. Think about your greatest dreams being fulfilled in your particular calling, in your career advancement. Jesus is better than that. Think about money and your material possessions growing exponentially. Jesus is better than that. Think about a lifetime filled of euphoric experience after euphoric experience. Jesus is better than that. Think about the often vaunted sex that our culture spends so much of its time talking about. A lifetime filled of sexual experience. Jesus is better than that. When we truly believe that Jesus is better and that truth takes root in our hearts, it displaces all the other loves, all the other types of false worship we would give ourselves to. The answer is not just seeing the deficiency in my accomplishments. The answer is seeing the true beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's what I've come to conclude that's what I've come to believe, that what I have in Christ is greater than anything this world could ever give me. Listen to C.S. Lewis express a similar sentiment in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer, offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Let me try to come at this from a different angle, okay? In both verses 7 and verse 8, Paul uses the word counted. Some of your translations may say reckoned. He says, I counted them loss for Christ. Verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That word counting is actually an accounting term. Now, I am no accountant. I am no son of an accountant. But let me just for a moment try to characterize what Paul is saying in terms of accounting. In accounting, basic accounting, you've got assets and you've got liabilities, right? 
Assets are typically good things that we have, uh, cash flow or resources that we have that, that are on our books as positive things. Liabilities are typically debts or obligations that we have that we have to pay, things that we owe. And of course, a good business is one that has more in the asset column than they do in the liability column. That's what we want to see from a healthy balance sheet. Well, when you and I enter this life, we enter our lives with a particular spiritual set of accounting principles through which we look at ourselves. We look at our lives through a principle of accounting that says, the reason I matter in my life are because of the assets I accrue. So here's my family, and here's what I've accomplished there. Here's my career, and what I've accomplished there. Here's my resume and all the different things that I'm involved in. Here's my involvement in the community. And our spiritual sense of accounting views these things as assets that really determine our worth or our value. The reason in many of our minds we matter, if we're really honest with ourselves, is if we have more assets in our asset column. But what Paul is doing here is he's encouraging us to revise our balance sheet. And he's saying, no, those things are not assets in your account. Actually, all of those things you list that you think are assets that you think make you matter, they're actually supposed to be in the liabilities column. The very things we think make us matter, because without Jesus we do them from false motives, because without Christ, we do them because we think we're the main character and this is about us. All of those things actually go in the liability column. What Paul is saying is what we have to have happen in our lives is a revision in our spiritual balance sheet. Now, here's the good news. Once you come to know Jesus... And he pays the debt on all of these things that we owe ourselves. The good news is God redeems many of these things that we've been doing for false reasons and redeems them as assets, not for our kingdom, but they become assets because they are now used for the glory and praise of God. Paul is not discouraging hard work. He's not trying to get us to not accomplish anything. He's trying to help us understand how we're to view our lives, and more importantly, how we're to view our Savior. So here's the question I think is worth asking at this point. What does your spiritual balance sheet look like? How are you viewing the assets and the liabilities that are in your account today? Some of us might be thinking right about now, well, you say Jesus is better, and you say I need him to revise my bank account, but why? Why should we believe that Jesus is better and that Jesus is the only one that can revise this balance sheet? I'm so glad you asked that. Look at verses 9 through 11 for the answer. 9 through 11 shows us why why is it that Jesus is better, and how within that does he revise this bank account, this balance sheet? Look at your Bibles. 
Look at the end of verse 8, going into verse 9. He says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The key phrase that, that like a key, unlocks this entire last section are the three little words, found in him. What it means to be found in him is that once you repent of your sin and place your faith and your trust in Jesus, Jesus is connected to you by faith in such a way that the benefits Jesus has won for us are applied to our balance sheets, our accounts. Okay? There are two ways this happens. On the one hand, when I'm connected to Jesus, when I'm in Christ, there's a legal connection in which I'm declared forgiven. I'm declared righteous. This is the idea of justification. That Jesus says, based on his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, when you place your faith in him, you're forgiven, redeemed. But the second thing that we're connected to is the power of Christ. Because not only does he declare me righteous, he also unleashes a power, the same power that resurrected him from the dead, that's the Holy Spirit, to change us and help us experience his grace and mercy. This is the doctrinal idea of union with Christ. That when we place our faith in Jesus, we're connected to him. Watch how Paul talks about this in verses 9, 10, and 11 as he talks on the one hand about this legal declaration, but number two, also about this spiritual power that's unleashed in our lives. He says, and be found in him, verse 9, here's legal, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So listen to me, sweet people. New Age spirituality could not be more wrong because it's not that the answer is within you. The problem is within you. The idea that you're going to find the answer inside yourself is totally false. Paul's saying the righteousness I need comes outside of me. It comes from Jesus, not from myself, not from my effort. But then secondly, he says, listen to this power, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you see it? By faith, there's a power unleashed in my life in which Jesus makes me look more like him, but Jesus also keeps me until I die or he returns and I'm perfected, the theological idea of being glorified. Why is Jesus better? Here's the simple answer. It's because Jesus is the only one that can pay your debt. You and I have a debt on our balance sheet because of our sin that we cannot deal with with the assets that we think we're accruing in our lives. The only one that can pay our debt is Jesus Christ. 
Because when Jesus dies on the cross, what he's doing is he's paying your liabilities. He's paying for your debts that are on your account because you and I should have been given the death that Christ got. He takes our place. And when Jesus dies and offer himself, offers himself as a perfect sacrifice, he's saying, I'm paying your debt, a debt that you cannot pay yourself. You see, the reason Jesus is the only one who can pay our debts is because he's the only one who can die for you, for your sin. Without Jesus, my balance sheet says, I owe a debt to God none of my supposed assets will ever cover. So let me ask you again. If you looked at your life, if we brought in a spiritual accountant to do an audit of your balance sheet, spiritually speaking, what would it reveal? In 2001, I don't know how many of you remember the company Enron, Anybody remember Enron in here, Enron 2001? Some of you weren't born in 2001, but we're glad you're here anyway. 2001, energy company out of Houston, Texas. Enron is accused of unethical accounting practices. Many of you may remember that. It was all over the news. It was a huge scandal because this company, as a result of their unethical practices, lost $74 billion worth of assets. Some of their executives went to prison and the accounting firm who did their books, Arthur Anderson, who was at the time famous all over the world, basically was shut down because it was shown that they were not reporting accurately the financial situation of that company. And here's what they were doing. They had these massive debts, liabilities, that they just decided they wouldn't show on their bank account. We'll just kind of skirt that to the side, and what they would present to their investors and to the world was not an accurate picture, but it was a more favorable picture of their financial situation. And so when the truth came out and all these debts showed up on their accounts, people saw that this company was actually in really big trouble. As I was thinking about this passage and thinking about just our time together today, I thought, that's probably a lot of what some of us are doing. We have an outstanding debt with our Creator that's massive because of our lying, because of our stealing, our disobeying our parents, our, our lust, our greed, because we've sinned. We owe a debt to God that some of us might like to think is kind of off our books. We've kind of swept it off to the side. But just like Enron eventually the truth comes out. Because one day, every one of us will stand before a holy and righteous God, and God will open our books. And he will say, what did you do with this debt on your account? And the only way we have a response to our Creator is if we say, I have trusted Jesus <laughs> and Jesus alone to pay that debt. If we have any other answer, we stand exposed and condemned. So I wonder if there's some of you today that are trusting 
some of your assets to make you acceptable before God. I hear it all the time. I'm a good person. I'm a lot better off than so-and-so down the street. Isn't it funny how we always compare ourselves to the worst person we can find? Don't, don't you see the money I give and the way I try to help people in our community? Doesn't God look at that? I know. What about my church attendance and the way I faithfully am involved in my local church? Or maybe it's the faith of your parents or your grandparents. My, my grandmother was a godly woman who prayed for me every day. Friends, listen to me. None of those things, none of those things, none of them can absolve us of the debt we owe to our God. The only way we can be made right with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the question before you and I today is, has there been a moment in our lives where we've repented of our sin and placed our faith and our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone? I wonder if there's some of you here today who for the very first time need to trust Jesus with the debt that's on your books. I do, however, know that there are some of you today that are believers, that are followers of Jesus. Can I tell you the way we need to think through this? We need to be careful that we view the assets on our books in a proper light. I see so many Christians looking to their assets, looking to their accomplishments for their worth or their identity or their value. Church, listen to me. Those assets, those accomplishments, your resume is not there to earn God's favor or to find worth and value. Those accomplishments are there for the glory and the praise of God. Your worth is not in what you own. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up at this time. We're going to close this morning by singing a song that we sang as a part of our worship this morning. It starts with this line, my worth is not in what I own. What I pray happens today as we respond to the word of God is that we would slow down and consider and reflect on the fact that the assets that Christ has entrusted with us, if, if we know him, are not there to make us acceptable to him, they're there to be used for his glory.